let me just tell you a little bit about me so you know why I'm here and why would I do what I do. I live just north of Nashville, Tennessee. Um, my husband and I have eight children and six grandchildren. And in 1995, I was a patient in a mental hospital. So welcome to the afternoon. So that's my story, and I hope you won't think I'm too flip about mental illness, but if you do, I would say, especially today as we're talking about the stigma of mental health, I would say, that's my story, that's how I share it, and that's what brought me to you today. So welcome friends to Consider Yourself Hugged, episode 15, Overcoming Mental Health Stigma. I am Dr. Tammy West here every week to bring you tips on living a life that brings you mental and emotional well-being. A few weeks ago, my son introduced me via email to Ann Ferrari, the mother of one of his friends. He did it because the boys, and I'm air quoting here because they're both 30-ish, they thought we would have a great deal in common and they were so right. I am so thrilled that I've gotten to meet her. So here's what's going to happen. During our time together, she is going to share with you a little bit about her mental health journey. She is going to teach you some things you probably did not know about mental health stigma, and then she'll give you some great advice on overcoming that stigma. Stigma. We all need to hear this advice, no matter whether you've been to a doctor and you are diagnosed with something, or you just struggle with mental health overall, we need to hear this. And finally, the coolest tool she uses in her classroom as a teacher, and I will read her bio in just a moment. The coolest thing, other than sharing her own story, which is awesome, is using celebrity to overcome that stigma. You are in for a treat. So let me read her bio, and then we will move right into our chat. Anne Ferrari is a developmental psychologist with a doctorate in applied developmental psychology, as well as a master's in childhood and special education. She has taught in higher education for more than 20 years as an associate professor, and her courses include abnormal psychology, human sexuality, and developmental psychology. Her research has centered on cultural differences in definitions of child abuse, and most recently, and why she's here today, strategies to reduce stigma toward mental illness. She has three children, three grandchildren, and in her spare time, she makes her own soap. Darn, Anne, I forgot to ask you about the soap. Rookie mistake. How about you tell us something about that in the comments, which would be awesome. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I bring you to the chat with Dr. Anne Ferrari. So I tried to read just a little bit to, to get me sort of familiar with you, but not enough where I just wasn't excited to hear what you had to say. So I know that you and I have both had mental health challenges in our past. Yes. Don't really know your story. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Um, It's interesting. I remember having anxiety from the time I was really a small little girl. I guess I didn't know it was anxiety then. Um, And I don't think anybody else actually labeled it as anxiety either, but it definitely was. So for instance, every Sunday night before it was time to go to school Monday morning, I would get physically ill. Like I would be so upset that I would feel like I was going to vomit. I would be that ill. And there were times when I didn't go to school the next day because I felt so sick. And it was definitely a fear of going the next day, a worry, a fear. Um, You know, the, the terms that we use to characterize, I guess, generalized anxiety disorder. I also remember episodes of what I think now 
I can define as depersonalization slash derealization. And they were short episodes, but I remember telling my mom, um, everything seems to be going really slowly and people don't seem to be real around me. And it would terrify me. And my mother, how old were you? I mean, I was small. I would say I was between seven and 10. Okay. Happening. Um, Yeah. And my mother would just say, okay, I'm going to hold you until it passes. And I remember distinctly how it felt because she would try to distract me and talk to me about other things. And I wanted the feeling to go away. It terrified me, but it would sometimes take a little bit of time to pass. And, you know, I didn't know what they were. I never knew what those episodes were. And now when I teach, you know, and I, I've learned about different kinds of illnesses, I'm like, well, that was depersonalization slash derealization. That's what that was. And that's a type of anxiety disorder. And what, what are those two things? Just real quick, because one of the things that's really speaking to me, and I'm not going to share my story today because I, this, I really want to hear yours, but I want you to know, and, and people who are listening, because when you told your story, it made me, it took my breath away every Sunday night. See, I had that, and I was 10 when my massive anxiety started and mine was sort of like the sun would go down and I would just filled with this unexplainable terror, but I would blame my mother because I thought I was dying. And like you said, I don't think there were real, that wasn't necessarily part of a diagnosis at that point when we were children. Um, And so I want people who are listening to hear your story and I bet they're going, oh my gosh, you know, even now they've heard something. Can you tell them what that um, depersonalization and what was the other one you said? Oh, derealization. Sure. They're often treated the same, but depersonalization is when you yourself don't feel real. You kind of feel like you're um, invisible almost to people around you and and people might characterize it. There's a song that um, Johnny Cash sings, um, sang, um, I hurt myself today to see see if I still feel. I know that song, yes. Yes. And I mean, it could be about a lot of different, you know, mental type of illnesses, but it could also be derealization, I mean, excuse me, depersonalization where you don't feel real and you need to do something in order to feel real because you just feel like you don't, own, you don't really exist the way other people exist. You're not feeling things the way other people feel things. You're not experiencing the world the way other people are experiencing the world. And um, derealization is when the world around you doesn't feel real. It seems like people are almost like robots. And I remember for me, it was almost as though people were walking in slow motion kind of like if you see a dream sequence on a TV show or something like that. That's how I remember um, seeing it. Like people were kind of going, like that kind of feeling as they went by me. And that would be derealization when the world around you seems to be going at different speeds or different kind of sounds. And it just, you feel like you're in an alternate universe almost. And both of those are really types of anxiety disorders. Um, Yeah. That's what you explained to your, to your mom too, right? I mean, you, you explained the feelings, even though you didn't yes. know that's what you oh, I, I had no idea. I don't think I, I didn't have an idea until fairly recently that that's what it was. Like it kind of just clicked one day. I was actually teaching a class about depersonalization and derealization. I was like, oh, oh, I think I had this. I think this happened to me when I was little. And I'm sure that's what it was. What else could it have been? Right. You know? Yeah. Wow. So so you started, you started, now you know that you were, you were experiencing anxiety and these things as a child. And then how did that, how did you progress in that? Um, yeah, my anxiety, I mean, I, it's, I still struggle. I don't like to talk about it as something in the past because I kind of feel like 
it's a part of me and it could always rear its head once again. Um, and I, I try to cope with it. I try to do things and live my life in ways that will manage it and, you know, make me feel as happy as I can feel and as useful as I can feel. But I don't necessarily feel like it's done. I feel like it's something that is ingrained in me and it's a part of me and, and it's a different way that I see the world. Um, I continue to have anxiety, although it became more pronounced fairly recently, about 10 to 15 years ago, after I went through a health issue. I had um, early stage breast cancer, which wow. was treated and I recovered from beautifully. And you know, everyone tells you how lucky you should feel. But what I kind of felt was, now I'm afraid of the world. I'm afraid of everything. I'm afraid of my body. I'm afraid of going to the doctor. I'm afraid of everything. Because these fears that I had all this time that I guess I kind of managed kind of came to fruition through this diagnosis. And now it's real. So now look, I was right. I was right to be afraid. All those, you know, so it got really bad at that point. And it actually turned into depression. I actually had a pretty bad episode of major depression in conjunction with my anxiety that I think was caused by my anxiety. A lot of times depression can be caused by people's anxieties. Yes. You know, they can be comorbid. You can be comorbid for both. So did, did you have health-related concerns growing up? Was that part of your anxiety? Because you said it manifested itself with the breast cancer diagnosis. So, and so you had health concerns. I think, I, I mean, part of, you know, generalized anxiety is you worry a lot. You worry about a lot of different things. And I think it was a family thing. My family tended to worry a lot about health-related things. It was always like, you know, don't eat that. It's not good for you. It causes cancer. Or we don't smoke because it's not good for you. It causes cancer. So it was always kind of like this mentality that, you know, you have to worry about this thing that's looming and you have to do as much as you can to basically control you know, and you have this false sense of control that you can control what's going to happen to you in terms of health issues, which isn't necessarily true. I mean, there's some control. Yes, you can avoid some, you know, negative behaviors that are do run in conjunction with different diseases. But we all know there's lots of people who live a model life and wind up with different kinds of diseases that, you know, there's no reason, no rhyme or reason as to why that occurred. So yeah, there was a lot of worry growing up that I came from a very health conscious family. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that bought into it. I mean, I think, you know, you can be health conscious and not worry the way I worry, but I worried about everything. And, and you know, that was part of who I was. I worried about mm -hmm. getting good grades. And I worried about doing well in school and being successful, whatever that meant, and all these different kinds of things. And health was, yes, another layer of that. Health was definitely a significant worry which actually would give me another disorder, which is illness anxiety disorder, which is a separate disorder, according to our DSM, a separate anxiety disorder where you worry about having an illness, where you worry about having a disease. Yeah. And I, you know, listening to you um, in the, the way that you grow up, because I do talk to people about the, those people who struggle with whether it's diagnosed anxiety disorder or just with worry, not diagnosed, but more worry than they want. We, we all have those triggers. You know, and mine, I'll tell you, Anne, health is not one of them at all. Okay. Um, yeah, isn't that, it's not one of those at all. But what people yeah. think about me <laughs> is a huge trigger. And I, just like you, uh, I don't think that I'll ever be, I don't think I'll ever be hospitalized again for, you know, for psychiatric issues. I don't know that. I don't think. But I still, it's part of who I am. And right. it rears its head sometimes. Mm -hmm. 
And I know one of the big things for you that I just love that you talk about is stigma that may prevent people from getting the help that they need. So you, that's part of your, that's part of what you do, is it, isn't it? Your research, your teaching. Yes. Um, how did that, is it because of your diagnosis and what, what brought you toward, toward talking about stigma? Why did that become important to you? Well, it kind of happened, you know, serendipitously. I was teaching, I teach abnormal psychology and as I teach that course, and as I, I always tell students, you know, you're going to think you have a lot of these disorders, and sometimes you might, and sometimes you may not, because that's just what happens as you learn more information. And I started, you know, realizing that a lot of students were suffering from a lot of disorders that I was teaching them. And they would always come up to me after class, very embarrassed and very shameful. I'm so sorry. I, I'm really not, I'm okay. I'm not, you know, in quotes, crazy or anything, but I think I have this and I think I have that. And I realized they were so stigmatized about talking about these different disorders that we were discussing in class. They were so afraid to admit that they might have this. So what I started doing, I was like, you know what, I need to get in touch with my own stigma about my own disorders. And if that can help me and my students, well, that's a double bonus. So when I would t talk about certain disorders, I would use myself as an example. Yeah. And you could just, you know, students are twiddling with their phones or whatever. But once I start doing that, all eyes are on me and you can hear a pin drop. And now they're paying attention because I'm making it real and I'm speaking to them. And I don't never, you know, I wasn't ever sure if I was making a difference or not in sharing my struggles with mental illness as I taught these different topic areas. But then students started telling me, you know, after they would leave the class, sending me notes, mm -hmm. um, coming to talk to me about how much it meant to them that I shared this and how they felt they were finally not alone with what they were feeling. Um, and that maybe if I could be, you know, if I could talk about it and I could be forward with it, maybe they could be too. But, you know, then they would talk about their reluctance to seek help, how their family felt about the possibility of them seeking help. Um, there's a lot of different kinds of stigma. So you have stigma that you can feel about yourself, about your own mental illness, the stigma you can feel about others and how you judge others. And there's another stigma on how you can feel about getting help. And many people view getting help as just a weakness that pervades the, not just the person, but like the family, like the whole family, like their parents are insulted. Like my students have shared with me that their parents are insulted that they need help because why aren't they enough? Why aren't the family enough to make these, their child well? And you're hurting my feelings because you're going for help when you should be happy with all I gave you. Why aren't you happy with what I gave you, right? So, you, you know, you can kind of see where the parent's coming from. They're feeling inadequate, but they're, they're viewing it from, you know, an incorrect angle. So I started thinking, well, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, I have not heard of stigma in that way before. That's really enlightening to me. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, stigma towards getting help it's really, there are a lot of cultural variations there, are variables that come into play. And families that are very, um, I guess it's like collectivistic, which means they, they view the family as the most important thing. You don't do things on your own. You only do things with your family. Um, the group is more important than the individual. You never would leave, like it, it, collectivistic cultures, a child would never go across country like my son did to go live in California versus New York because you would never leave your family. That's collectivistic cultures. And collectivistic cultures believe illnesses are everybody's problem. So when if a child has an illness, it's kind of like, well, yeah. 
it reflects on us too. Do exactly. You think, do you think like, I know when my, well, ex-husband, when my first husband, when the, we just, he decided it was time to admit me, my, my mother was dead set against it. Why are you doing that? But I think, and this may not be stigma. Tell me just, I don't know, quick thought. It was sort of, she struggled with mental illness. So do you see that maybe part of the problem with the family structure of mental health is that if you, if I have a mother who's very dependent on me and I go get help, then where does that leave her? That could very well be. You it think could also, yeah, it could be, well, it could be a lot of things. It could be codependency. Maybe she likes having you in the position, not in a mean way, but it kind of likes it that she's taking care of you and that you leaned on her and, and that made her feel useful. But it could also be that it points out her own inadequacies, her own feelings of inadequacy and her own insecurities and her own mental illness. And if you want to believe that you're well um, and you tell yourself you're well, you're in denial about that. And someone else who has the same exact problems as you and they're not well, well, now you're saying I'm not well. And mm. what are you saying? I have to be institutionalized too, you know, and it could be part of that as well. But I think it was also a little stigma. I mean, um, to have to be institutionalized, that sounds, you know, we have images of that, that the media presents us with yes. and they're not pretty pictures. And, and it's hard to, for someone perhaps to admit that to someone else because people will have, I mean, there are a lot of people that have negative reactions, that sort of thing. And you have to be strong to be able to say, you know what, this was a good thing. This was a healthy thing. This helped me or helped someone else rather than, you know, it's not what you think you see on the t on television with, you know, the way they depict mental illness, which is a huge problem, by the way. Because they do. They do. Yeah. I remember having, I went to, I was in sales, I don't know, years ago and I, I've been sharing my story for years and it bothers me like zero, but I, I was meeting with a, a director at a school and he didn't know me at all. And somehow it came about that his sister lived near me in Tennessee and he put his fingers up to quote. And he was like, yep, she was in the wacko hospital. And I didn't, I didn't tell him it didn't offend me, but I, it didn't offend me, but it really could have held back somebody else. Absolutely. And you sent me your presentation and some of your notes. Mm -hmm. um, I really hope that people who are listening today will hear you deeply because you have some thoughts about this overcoming stigma. Um, where should we start with that? How would you help people? And cause the, you also sent me some slides that had some ads in there yeah. depicted, you know, I don't know where you want to start with this, but I am thrilled that you are here to help these people today. Well, thank you so much. Um, well, one of the ways I think, well, at least there's three ways you can deal with stigma. There are three ways you can kind of combat it, um, according to some major researchers and some wonderful researchers, Corrigan and Penn and Vogel and Wade. But one way is to protest it. So when you see it, to call it out. So if you see it in the media, if you see it in advertisements, to complain. And you're talking about all of us, right? We're Absolutely. not just talking about a big organization needs to do this. You're talking on an individual level, stand up. Absolutely. I mean, and that's what has happened at, at some instances. Um, there was a candy on one of my slides. I have this. That's candy. the one. <laughs> yeah. Um, made by Nestle. Oh, I don't know if I can use brand names on your show. I don't know if I should have done that. But um, the names for the candies were things like um, Weirdo Wally and Wacko Looney Jerry. They were just derogatory names that were supposed to be funny. And you know, the National um, Alliance for Mental Illness, people there said, this is inappropriate. We don't like that you're making fun of mental illness and using this to sell your candies. And they protested and 
they discontinue those names. And similarly, television shows, I mean, you know, the media and products, whatever it might be, they're dependent on consumer. And if the consumer doesn't like something and the consumer complains, they're going to think twice because that's where their pockets are. So yes, for all of us to say, I don't like the way you're depicting this, send an email, make a call. I don't like the way you're depicting mental illness. I don't like the derogatory you know, way that you show it. Um, protest can be powerful. It can stop you know, organizations from doing things. But the problem with the only problem with protest is it can stop someone from doing something negative, but it doesn't substitute something positive. Mm. So yes, you know, you get rid of the negative depiction, but you don't show a positive depiction. So yes, you get, you get rid of the depiction of a mental hospital being a place where people are walking around, you know, drugged and like zombies, but you don't replace it with what it really is. And therefore people might still have that image in their minds, even though it's been taken away and taken out of the media. So protest has a good place. So it's a start. Yes, it's and definitely think, a start. Why don't we do this too? Because like you said, I don't know how much we can, um, you know, I do the show notes. Let's look at, um, let's look at, maybe we can find something we can put in the show notes as far as either a link to a, a protest that worked or some images that shows people what you're talking about. So we'll work on that. We'll put something sure. in the show notes to help people really kind of get a grasp on this issue of protest. Absolutely. But it's a start. Okay. Yes, what, else, what else needs to happen? Well, education. So the more we understand about mental illness, we can dispel myths, we can dispel stereotypes. I mean, people have this, under, this idea that people who are mentally ill are dangerous. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. It's, you're more likely to be, um, have, be a victim of violence by someone who's not labeled as mentally ill than you are with someone who's labeled as mentally ill. But we have this depiction because it's often shown in, again, media, TV shows, things like that, mm -hmm. that would, mental illness are dangerous. Um, so education around it. The only thing about education, everything has a caveat. The thing about education is it kind of depends how you educate. So the, the style, you know, that someone uses when they teach can be really, so when we come from it, which is really interesting, when we come from education from a very biological point of view, if you talk about mental illness as being rooted in the genes and there's nothing you can do, that's how they're going to be, people actually get more scared about mental illness than when we talk about it as something that, as a result of living your life and that there's changes you can make and that it's more societal and that's more environmental than it is biological. So but unfortunately, when we teach about mental illness, we often teach from a biological perspective. You know, mm -hmm. what's going on with the brain? What's going on with different chemicals in the body that are creating this mental illness? And, and you know, that's the way we treat a lot of mental illnesses too, biologically. So we tend to feel strongly about a biological foundation. So, but that can be one of the worst things because, you know, this whole disease model, um, trying to use a disease model to say that it, limits that it reduces stigma hasn't really worked out the way researchers had hoped. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. Even like with addiction, when addiction became a disease and people started referring to it as a disease, they were hoping that it would conjure up more sympathy and empathy for the, for the person who was addicted, which is also right. a mental illness. And it hasn't really worked that way because diseases have stigmas, right? I mean, I, I, yes. Yeah. I mean, none of us like, we, none of us want a disease. We're terrified of disease and we, and people react in very negative ways. Oh, I don't know if I should share this, whatever with you, you have, you know, this disease or something like that. People make faces, they act disgusted by certain diseases. 
So it didn't really give mental illness the, mm-hmm. you know, the soft, it didn't soften the effect of mental illness by giving it the whole disease. It didn't make it that much better. And what we find is the best way to reduce mental illness is to have contact with people who are mentally ill. Mm-hmm. And the only way you can have contact is if people disclose. Yes. People have to disclose. <clears throat> um, just, and we'll come back. I just wanted to say something real quick before. Sure. I so a friend of mine, um, we both taught high school together and I left to do research and speak and she left and is a psychiatric nurse practitioner. So we have written together a mental health program that we are doing in schools um, for different school teachers, um, school cafeteria staff, bus drivers. And she addresses the helping teachers and staff understand mental wellness and how they can create um, an environment that fosters safety and um, concern and peace in the classroom. And then I help the teachers deal with their own mind and, and thoughts. But while we were developing this program, um, I, and, I'll, and I'm actually going to look for the link and probably put it in the show notes because I, I cannot remember the society, but I took a mental health quiz about is, do you, what is your stigma? Do you, do you, do you have a stigma about mental illness? And a couple of the questions were, one of them was if you, you know, you're young and dating, something like this, I might have it wrong, but would you just go out with someone who'd been diagnosed with schizophrenia? Would you have a concern about it? I think was the question. And I had to stop for a minute. Right. I really did. And I thought, you know, I've been around plenty of people with anxiety and depression and even bipolar, but I don't know anything about someone with schizophrenia. Right. So it was a real eye opener to me, me who's been in the mental hospital diagnosed with OCD and depression and anxiety and panic and all that. I still don't have things clearly worked out in my mind. What about people who have never had contact with someone with any mental illness, or at least they don't know they have. Right. Anyway, I just, that just came in my head. I was like, wow, my contact is not as, as broad as I would just pat myself on the back for. Well, I think that's great that you can see that, right? I mean, that's a wonderful thing that you realize and address your own, you know, stigma and where it might be. I mean, we're all works in progress, right? We're all trying to figure out ways to make ourselves better and to, you know, broaden our minds. Yeah, I mean, certain mental illnesses have better prognoses than others. And because of that, there's different stigma associated with having different mental illnesses. So that's absolutely true. Yeah, well then, so when you say contact and you said, okay, so just being around people and, but the only way that you can know that is if others share and disclose, right? do, what, do you have any suggestions about that, especially for people who are listening and um, how, how do people become more comfortable and safe in well, talking about that? Yeah. I mean, well, you know, people need to disclose when they feel comfortable disclosing. And, I, you know, I would never push anyone to do that. However, you can feel more comfortable as you come to realize that others have the same disorder. Hollywood has been wonderful as of late. Hollywood and musicians, even rap musicians, have come out recently sharing their mental health struggles. And it's been a boon. It really has been. Mm-hmm. Um, and... For instance, Logic is a rapper who performed at the Grammys and he did a song. The name of his song is the, is the hotline number for the suicide um, 
Hotline. That's the name of the song that he performed. Wow. After he performed that song, and he said he had lost too many people to suicide, so he did this whole song about suicide, and he talks about his own mental health struggles as well. But after he performed that song at the Grammys, the number of calls to the National um, Suicide Hotline increased, I think, by 30%, and that's sustained over, I think, a three-week period. So, Wow. And I... I just want to interject real quick. Those yeah. who are listening, make sure you really tune in with your ears at this moment because I think Anne is about to talk about what she does with this, I mean, using the celebrity. And this is so unique. So you're, you're hearing this, and I've never heard it before except from her. So I just want to make sure they were really listening because this is an exciting thing that you're doing. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, because I self-disclosed my class, you know, I, I was able to self-disclose on some mental health, health illnesses, but I don't have all of them. So I real I was wondering, I mean, I'm not reaching. That's good. Them. Yeah, right. At least I don't have all of them. I have quite a few, but I don't have all of them. <laughs> but um, I was like, well, I can't reach everyone. And, you know, there's always going to be a student who has something and it doesn't have me to relate to. So I thought, well, who can I use? How can I do this? And I started doing research and I looked and you know, and found out how contact helps. But to find people that would come into my classroom, that's a difficult thing. So I started looking towards celebrities and I started Googling. And of course there was so, and there were just so many celebrities as of late. For instance, Pete Davidson from SNL talks about his borderline personality disorder all the time now. Mm. So I just started, I redid my whole class and I made all new like slides and information and video and every mental health illness that I discuss I show a celebrity who has it. If I can get an interview, an audio or a video of that interview of that celebrity talking about their mental health illness, I show it. So each one is taught through the lens of someone who had the illness. And basically what that does for stigma is it shows a student, there's someone, one of those beautiful people, right? One of the beautiful people in quotes yes. who we look up to and think has the world in their hands, has everything they ever wanted. And we think, oh, they have no problems. They have problems too. And if they have problems, well, then it's okay to have a problem. It's part of life maybe to have a problem and you work on your problems. So I actually tested to see. So I made this whole development. I made this whole new course using celebrities um, to teach about my mental health illnesses. And I did a pretest before the class to ask students about their stigma. And it's interesting. The quiz that you took is very similar to what I gave my students. I asked them how likely would they be to date someone who had a mental health illness, to marry someone, if in all the ways the person was perfect for them. And they just mm -hmm. circled on a scale from like one to five or something like that. And then I gave them a little quick quiz about how likely they were to get help if they knew they had a mental health um, problem. And I did that in the beginning of the class. And then I taught my class using the celebrity method. Yeah. And then I gave the, um, the test again. And lo and behold, their stigma changed enormously. They went from being quite afraid of being in a relationship or being a roommate or marrying someone who might have a mental health illness and getting help themselves to being quite amenable to having a relationship with someone who had a mental illness. So their, their stigma towards mental health illness, towards others and towards themselves changed. Now, I don't know how long, I'm going to do research now to see how long that effect sustains. And I don't know how long it's going to sustain. How long have you been teaching it this way? Um, about five years. Oh, wow. Yeah, five years. And I was so happy when I saw the results, when I saw that this actually worked, that it actually was helpful for stigma, which I suspected would be, but I wasn't 100% sure. 
And, and that's something that, I mean, everyday people, so everyday people, you may not be taking a course in psychology, but if you feel you're suffering from something, Google it, Google famous people with fill in the blank, you will find people. And that is one way to give yourself contact with someone. Well, and it's anytime a celebrity, you know, Demi Lovato and just mm -hmm. comes to yeah. mind for me, but every time something happens like that with a celebrity, things go crazy on Twitter and the news and people want to feel like they want to feel better, you know, about their struggles with, and, and let me say this too, that, and I know you agree with this, you know, for you out there listening, we're, we are talking here about um, some mental health diagnoses, but we all have a degree of mental wellness. It's, you know, from mental well to diagnose mental disorders, but we all, we, our mind is just like us physically. We have physical disorders and good physical health. And we have times when we're in bad physical health. And if that stigma could go away, we might even get help so much sooner in order to keep it from escalating. And I, I love this way that you're doing it. I, I haven't seen anyone else because you're taking what we just happen to see occasionally on the news and you're turning it into something that can help on a regular basis. Yes. Uh, and I love that you just told everybody, look, just Google and look. Is there, is there anything else you think that we could, related to this, uh, that we could put in the show notes for people who are listening? Um, any links or? Um, oh, I'm sure that I can provide that. I'd be happy to provide the, um, my presentation, which has a lot of the different celebrities who have spoken oh. about. You're welcome to that if you'd like it. Oh, you're amazing. Because I loved it. I did look through it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and just like, just like you with me still just still having the occasional struggles, it helps me. Oh, sure. It just does. It's affirmation. It's, you know, you feel like you're the only one. That's one of the things that makes the stigma worse. We feel like we're the only one and we're ashamed that we have this problem. Why can't we do better? You know, and then you see, oh, you know, and I think social media actually makes that problem worse because you look out in the world, you have less perhaps physical contact with people and more virtual contact and virtual contact you know, people, of course, they take pictures of themselves happy, right? They, they depict something that, yes. that hides, the, you know, it's the mask. And then we think, oh, we're the only ones who have this problem. We're the only ones who feel empty. We're the only ones who are experiencing this anxiety. And we're not. I mean, one in four Americans has a mental health illness. That's a large amount. You think when mental illness was that ubiquitous that yeah. we'd have less stigma, but we still have a great deal. Well, and then there's a whole, this would be a whole nother talk, but then there is the stigma of the treatment. If you're on medication, oh, yeah. and, you know, I, I am a Christian and attend and there's sometimes that stigma with, you don't have enough faith if yes. you're on antidepressants and, oh, I, I, I had a, a yeah. back a few years ago. In fact, I think I, I either did a podcast about it or I wrote about it, but I was in a, you know, the situations that can trigger me are when I'm doing something speaking wise that is just way, uh, way out of what I normally do. And this happened years ago and I was freaking out. But instead of telling my doctor that, you know, it had been years since I had taken anything, but mm -hmm. I knew what would help bring me off the ledge quickly would be clonopin. But I mean, just for a couple of days, but I was afraid to ask for it. I was afraid to tell him how bad it was. Right. And so they put me on an antidepressant that was going to take weeks to work. And I knew that wasn't what I needed. Right. So, but I was afraid. You know, I was like, oh, I don't want him to think I'm drug seeking or I don't. 
Well, yeah. I mean, that is often how it's depicted, especially when you're looking for a benzodiazepine, which you know is going to work quickly for the problem. That's how it's often viewed. The benzodiazepines have a very bad reputation and doctors are very reluctant to prescribe them, even though they offer almost immediate relief. Yes. And you're right. The antidepressants take a good six weeks to kick in. And yeah. that's problematic. Yeah, medication, I, I see, I've had so many students and it breaks my heart who are clearly suffering serious depression and won't take medicine. And I, it, I try so hard to, to break down this wall that they have around how taking medicine is just going to be, um, like it's just gonna, like the wrong thing to do for them. Like they were admitting their weakness or yes. something like that. I don't even understand it. They'll, they'll take all kinds of other things. They'll do all kinds of other things, but they won't take something that they know is going to make them feel better. And I try to present it as, look, you don't have to stay at it in your whole life. Right. So take it now. See how it feels and see if you feel better. And then you can judge it from there and you can make a decision. But to be so opposed to it, and that's part of the culture too. Antidepressants have received an awful reputation from the media. It's looked upon as being people that are, prob that are dangerous perhaps or yes. um, just something terribly wrong that we don't want to be associated with having to take medicine. And that's another thing that I think most of us can do. We can watch our own language and how we speak to people so that we don't perpetuate stigma. You know, just like little funny things that we think are funny, like don't be a wacko or don't be crazy or loony bin, like you had said before. Mm -hmm. Or I've heard people say, oh, I think you're, you need to adjust your meds as a joke. Yes. You know, like if you something irrational, like, well, you know, everyone does something irrational once in a while. It's like, oh, you need to get your meds adjusted. Well, what if you're on meds and someone says that? Yep. That's hurtful. You know, it's like, okay, I need meds. So I guess, you know, I'm one of those people. And so we can watch just like language is a powerful tool. It, it you know, it's everything. It's how we define our world. And it, it can really be hurtful and it can be hurtful to yourself too, to use language like that. Because in uh, the day that you need meds and then you're feeling like, oh, you know, it, it, where did the stigma come from? Well, it comes from your language. It's been something you've been using to describe this for a long time. You need to have the blinders lifted so that, so that you can see whether you're hindering your own self by your language, which right. is, so I was going to ask you just kind of, as we um, get toward the end of our time together, what are there, are there, are there other suggestions that you would give those who are listening, those who maybe aren't getting help or just anything else that you can tell them to help them with their mental health struggles, stigma, anything else. Cause I think you've just been amazing. Oh, thank you so much. Ah. Um, well, I would say to find, if you can find support, it doesn't have to be that you have, con you know, find support anywhere you can. If there's people in your life who are making your life worse and you feel this, I mean, I've, I've noticed a lot of people with mental health struggles get locked into very negative relationships with other people who are very toxic. And there comes a time when you may have to just free yourself of these toxic people and find people who are supportive of you. Um, there's even online support. Like some people are afraid to actually go out there and talk about it. There are online support groups. And that can be like your first little baby step towards talking about something. And then perhaps once you talk about it in a virtual place, you'll be able to actually talk about it in a real place. Our fears about talking about our mental health struggles then I'm always a little afraid whenever I talk about it. But then once you get past it, the amount of support that you often get, it, it kind of makes it all worth it. And sometimes you have to take that step to talk about it that first time with people you feel you can trust. So find that person in your life that you feel is not a judgmental person, um, someone that you can trust. 
Um, and if there is no one, and I don't, you know, feel that everyone's going to have someone, then reach out virtually, find a support group online. I love that. Yeah. I mean, we tend to isolate ourselves when we feel when we're in psychological pain and the isolation makes it worse. It absolutely does. But that tends to be a reaction that we do. And unfortunately, you know, that just traps us. Mm. Well, and part of that, just going back again, that stigma, if we could just, if we could decrease that, then all of this gets a little bit better. Absolutely. Time we talk. Yes. Well, I have loved having you on today. So I'm going to post in the show notes um, some, we'll, we'll talk and, and find some links to some of the interesting celebrity stuff. I will put your presentation in the show notes and anything else that you want to send me that you think will be helpful, I will put in there. And I just thank you so much for taking time out of your day. And I hope that we will continue the conversation and just get rid of this stigma and help people with their struggles. Thank you, Anne. Oh, no, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it being on. Thanks. And that's our time for today. I truly hope that you learned something about mental health stigma and will absolutely pass this show link along to a friend or two. You can find the show notes and get information if you'd like for me to speak at your next event at TammyWest.com. The monthly giveaway will still come from leaving a comment on the blog. And look for all of Anne Ferrari's contact information, her PowerPoint presentation she has graciously offered to share, and a couple of other links. So make sure you check that out. And finally, remembering our mental and emotional well-being goal, I hope that you will renew your thoughts daily, adopt empowering language that prevents verbal harm to yourself and others, and make positive mental and emotional choices on a daily basis. And as always, until next time, consider yourself hugged. <laughs>